Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. People can change anything they want to. And that means everything in the world. Show me any country and there'll be people in it. It's time to take the humanity back into the center of the ring and follow that for a time. You know, think on that. Without people, you're nothing. Without people, you're nothing. Stoke the fire. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition, another installment of Stoke the Fire. As always, we are your hosts, Matt Stocks and Jesse Leach. Jesse Leach, how are you? I'm quite well, thank you. How are you, brother? Quite well. I'm doing good. I woke up today and I felt a kind of new sense of vigor and purpose after a couple, well, maybe just a week, but a week in the fog. And um, I think after we last sat down, that conversation with Rob Flynn that we did just really you know, ignited the spark in me again. Um, And I was really pleased with how open and vulnerable that conversation was. You know, I knew it was going to be good because Rob's a great storyteller and, you know, he's got a ton of stories, but he really exposed some kind of heart and soul, didn't he, in that chat? And it was beautiful. Yeah, at the risk of sounding very cheesy, I feel like I'm a lot closer to him as a friend than I was before the chat. Yeah, it was great. It was great. Um, I know I say this a lot, but... It's hard not to. It's easily one of my favorites. I feel like the more we do these things, the more I'm just like, I love this fucking podcast. It was great. Yeah. Amen. To Rob. And you uh, actually wrote something on your Instagram today, Mm -hmm. um, which I scrolled through just before this chat. It was kind of like your thoughts, right? You woke up, you had these thoughts racing through your brain. You committed them all to, you know, I say paper. That's the phone. Um, And you posted these thoughts and it was funny because I was reading all of them and they weren't just like, you know, smile once a day, like really short, snappy thoughts. They were quite layered and and intricate thoughts. And every single one of them, I 100% agreed with. And I was reading them and I was like, yeah, this is why we get on. This is why the show works, because it's almost like we have just the same life philosophy and worldview on nearly everything. And I, I loved reading what you had to say. Um, and yeah, it kind of leads us nicely into this chat, I think, with our guest this week, because he's somebody else who I've really bonded over like you. Um, I met him like I met you through my podcast, Life in the Stocks, and like my relationship with you, um, there we go, there's that weird sound. Do you ever get that sound coming up, or is it just me? It was like the, anyway, it threw me for a second, so I was going to say, um, Today's guest, like you, is somebody who I met through my show, and he's somebody who I've had some really kind of open and and beautiful conversations about mental health with, and we've bonded a lot over our mutual struggles, um, as well as our interests and passions. And like you, he's somebody that's very open about his mental health issues, and he's really been a kind of an inspirational figure in my life in that regard. Um, And I know you weren't familiar with his work until 
the most recent couple of days when you've kind of been binging his stuff and before well let's get him on first and then you can tell him firsthand yeah some of your just initial thoughts to to his brilliant work but without further ado let's bring him onto the show our guest today on stoke the fire is uk comedian and my dear friend nick helm nick flick on that camera now to the camera yeah right okay. i've done the camera right there he is <laughs> we're hello. in it you're welcome hello hello i feel welcomed <laughs> jesse hello, jesse nice Nicholas. to meet you jesse yeah very nice to meet you too man definitely been uh binging you lately i guess we'll start with my little intro to you um I'm a lifelong comedy fan, and I already see Chris Farley on a poster behind you when I, you first popped on, which is one of my favorites. Um, I think you do his comedy justice. You've got that vigor. You've got that energy. I think of early Zach Galifianakis. I think of uh, Belushi. There's a real brilliance to what you do. There's a real brilliance to it, and there's also some i think some real pain and some real anger behind all of it and i can totally relate to it and yeah i think you're brilliant and i'm now a new fan for sure i love what you do it's great oh i wasn't expecting all of this <laughs> <laughs> i thought it was going to come on here and give you some shit and get uh, some shit no i mean no honestly it, i was it you know when i first watched what he had sent me and i was like whoa this guy's like wow and the more I watch it, the more I was like, oh, I get what's happening here. This is brilliant. The interaction you have with the audience, your use of anger and humor, it, it's, it's incredible because it skirts the line for some people of slight uncomfortableness, and then you just pull it all together at the end. It's, yeah. It's very unique, too. I will say that. As much as I name drop some comedians, you definitely have your own thing going. So, yeah, kudos, man. That's Yeah. Yeah. He takes compliments very well. <laughs> I, I, I don't take compliments well, um, but that's very. Oh, no, no, cheers. No, that's good. Yeah, I'm a big fan of, uh, of of you and everything that you do as well. So thank you for having me, and goodbye. <laughs> <laughs> Nick, this is a very obvious question, but let's just start here for the benefit of you know people who are watching or listening to this who aren't familiar with your style. But for you, um, when you were first developing your voice, who would have been some of your you know p figures of inspiration, either in comedy or just you know in any artistic lane? Uh, I I think it's I think it's weird really because um, I think that if obviously Chris Farley was uh, a huge sort of influence I, I don't even know if he was an influence I was a big fan but I think that when it comes to sort of being creative it's not it's not you don't necessarily do like for like so it's not necessarily like oh I, I want to be like Chris Farley I think that that's always been very far from my mind but recently um I've had, you know, and I'm not saying that I'm anywhere near any of these people, but, you know, I've had uh, John Belushi um, comparisons several times, like, recently. And I think that that's obviously very complimentary because it's sort of like I, I do stuff that's, like, larger than life. But I don't think that that's really where any of my influences come from. Whereas when I was growing up, you know, I obviously grew up in England and uh, all of my influences were sort of British TV. So, you know, um, and I, I've just actually come off another podcast where we were talking about films and right. I was sort of like saying like, you inherit your tastes from your parents, you know, or your family. 
I had a big sister. So I sort of like inherited her taste until I found my own. Yeah. And, um, you know, so when I was growing up, I used to really like the Beatles and the Beach Boys and, you know, Bob Dylan, that sort of stuff. And then there was a point in my early teens when I went, oh, Alice Cooper. And then I was like, oh, that's what I like. Yeah. yeah. You find your own taste, don't you? When you hit that kind of teenage tunnel. Exactly. So when I was sort of, I still like the Beatles and I still like the Beach Boys, but that's kind of like, or ABBA even, you know, but it's sort of like, those are sort of communal tastes that are all right to play around yeah. the dinner table when you're with your family. But like, um, but when it comes to my personal taste, they're different. And so comedy's a lot like that. So I learned how comedy worked through sitting next to my dad watching films. So sort of like Mel Brooks stuff when I was growing up. But, um, and my mum watched loads of British TV. So I grew up watching stuff like Blackadder and French and Saunders and Jasper Carrot and Billy Connolly. And those are the things that made my mum and dad laugh. And then when I got into the 90s, it was more of Stuart Richard Herring, um, Newman and Baddiel. And um, Jack D was my favourite comedian, who's a very sort of like dry, sarcastic. Very dry, yeah. A comedian and so like miles away from what i do and then yeah, harry yeah. hill who was really really silly and when i first started out doing comedy um i was always very sort of like upbeat happy optimistic i sort of like would go out on stage and have loads of energy but it would be like hey i want to be your what would happen is when when i start when i started out we'd, we'd be put on a lineup where there'd be like you know 10 acts on a Sunday night, on a wet, rainy Sunday night uh, in like the middle of London. And I was living at my parents' house and I'd have to travel into London to do this gig that had three people in the audience. And there'd be, there'd be more acts than, than audience members. Yeah. And Stuart Lee was a really big kind of British comedian at that moment in time. And every act on the circuit wanted to be Stuart Lee and I wanted to be Stuart Lee and he was really dry really sort of intelligent cerebral um sarcastic creative uh inventive just he was just this amazing he is still but like at the time it was like everyone wanted to be Stuart Lee and I'd be on a lineup where there were 10 people that all wanted to be Stuart Lee including me and it would get to the, the seventh act and the audience would be dead yeah, and you'd kind of like go. Well, someone's got to take one for the team, and I it would it would be me, and I'd go out and I'd be full of energy, and I'd be like, "All right, everybody," and then you know I'd do all right, and the the next act directly after me would do all right, and then it would slump back down into kind of like. So I sort of ended up doing something that I didn't necessarily want to do. Is this how that high octane performance began to kind of gestate? Then it was kind of really just by circumstance. Yeah, try, it's trial and error because it's not necessarily you can have the best plan in the world, but when it doesn't work and you're in front of an audience, you've got to survive. Do you mm -hmm. know? And um, and I, I did Edinburgh every year and I was writing loads of material and I was just like, no, I'm writing all this material, but it's not going anywhere. So I stopped writing material. And I was just like, I've got I've got jokes. I just don't know how to tell them. And so I was just like, I'll work out how to do my material. And so I did, uh, I, I was meant to do a, um, a three-hander, 
uh, with two two of my friends. What's a three-hander? Sorry, where you, three of you share an hour. Right. I think I might have even just invented that phrase. So <laughs> yeah, because he sounds like a sex <laughs> movie. <laughs> <laughs> where where we all went, uh, we all went up to Edinburgh and wanked each other off for a month. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, <laughs> But we did like a we did like a, a triple headliner where three of us would do an hour, we'd do twenty minutes each, but they dropped out right before it was too late, right after it was too late to cancel, so I had to fill an hour. So I was just like, oh, I'll just go up, and no one will see my show, and I'll just work out how to do my jokes for for a month. And I, I went up and I learned how to do my jokes after about three days, and it was a really great show, and loads of people came to see it, and it was like, oh right, great, that was in two thousand and nine. And and there'd be things like you'd go on and do a mixed bill gig during that festival where it would be raining and you'd have like this packed audience full of wet tourists and English wasn't their first language. <laughs> and and it would just be like this miserable experience where all of the acts would go on stage and die and then come off stage. And I went up, I, you know, there was like a TV name headliner that was on. And it was three o'clock in the afternoon. It was just, a, nobody wanted to be there. The audience didn't want to be there. The acts didn't want to be there. And I just went on and I was just, just went like, what the fuck are you doing here? Why are you here? What's your fucking problem? If you left, you don't want to be here. If you just left, we wouldn't have to do this. We're only doing this because you're here. And I got so angry at them. And all of the acts really loved it. And I was like, oh, well, maybe that's what I do. Instead of going on and being like really friendly and happy, I'll do that. And I tested that for like a month. And then by the end of it, I sort of like had my acts. But <laughs> it wasn't it wasn't because I wrote down on a piece of paper, this is what I want. It was that, it, you know, through kind of like getting it up on its feet, you work out, oh, actually, that doesn't work the way I thought it would work. So how am I going to make what I've got work in a new way? And through kind of like listening to what the audience, how the audience reacted to what I did. And it's, it's you know, people say it's conversation. It's a monologue when you've got a microphone. How is it a conversation? Well, you listen to what the audience go for and then you do that. And so that's how you sort of like develop your act. You're not trying to, well, I'm not trying to go up there and sort of like put people off. I'm only writing stuff that I think is funny. People say, oh, it's so clever because you make the audience feel, you know, so awkward. And and I'm like, uh, that's I? just to make yourself laugh, <laughs> is it? <laughs> <laughs> but do you know what I mean? It's like, it's, it's like, you get, there is, I, I had, a, I had a, a friend that was like saying, I don't think you're going to make it, Meg. And I was like, oh, right. He goes, yeah, it's just, it's so weird. And it's just like, is it? Because I, I thought I was doing what you were doing. And he was like a very mainstream app that was kind of like, hey, you know, when you go to the shops and your basket is full of toilet roll, you go, <laughs> oh, right. Yeah. Well, I thought I was doing that. And they're like, no, you're not doing that. You're doing something else. So um, so it got there through like trial and error and kind of like working out what worked and didn't work. And it is that's how it's a conversation with the audience. So I can kind of like if people don't like my act, I can always say, which well, your fault? because <laughs> you 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 were the people that told me it was all right in the first place do you know what i mean so i relinquish all responsibility for it so i think when you go to see a comedian for the most part you're rooting for them not to to fail you know you're you sort of like want them to do well so it's not awkward in the room yeah 
Um, but what I love about what you're doing is, and you can see when they pan to the audience, people are laughing. It is quote unquote awkward for some people, but those people who look awkward at the end, they're fucking laughing. And I think that push and pull, why it's brilliant is because you did observe. And as a performer myself, being on stage for the better part of 20, 25 years now, th there's so much that I'm rooting for when you start to sort of quote unquote berate the audience. I'm like, yes. When you pick that one guy, like, why are you not enjoying yourself? It's because of you. This is not good. And I'm like, in the back of my head, I'm like, I wish I could do that I'm on stage with my band. Do you know of any musicians that do that, Jesse, that take that approach? D. Schneider's maybe one I can think of. But other than him, I can't think, and maybe Nick, you could jump in as well. I can't think of any, at least rock and metal singers, that would call out somebody if they're having a shit time and be like, this is your fault that this is shit. <laughs> yeah, right. More should. It would be amazing. I mean, Keith Buckley gets a little close at times. He's fucking amazing behind the mic. But yeah, for the most part, no. We're As singers, you just kind of want to make people feel like they're welcome. But the flip side is just brilliant. I think it's fucking hysterical. I love it. But also you're sort of like, because um, I've done, I've done, I do music as part of my act as well. Oh, yeah. I've and I it. sort of like breathe a sigh of relief when I get to a song because I'm just like, this is five minutes, so this is four minutes. Yeah, yeah. That is on rails. That that I, I if I get to the end of this song, that's four minutes that I don't have to worry about, you know, because this song works. This is fine. It's it, it's also like when you're on stage, it's weird. I, I went to see a gig at the weekend. I went to see my friends' band, Massive Wagons, which is a British band that are sort of new, and um. And I really enjoyed it. And then you, as a performer, when you look into the audience, you have a different experience from the gig to what the audience has. And especially in comedy, but it also you do get it in music as well. When people aren't dancing or people aren't moving and people aren't jumping up and down, people aren't clapping, people haven't got their arms in the air. And as a performer, when you're looking out into the audience, you're like, going, they're not enjoying it. But we've, but we've got the music or we've got the act and it's fine. And if I stick to it and if I don't point it out, it'll be all right. But when you're in the audience, it's kind of like, especially in comedy, I think because I'm a comedian, I'm hyper aware of what my face is doing. So I'll always have like a smile on my face, an encouraging smile. So that, but, but what is actually more natural is to just sit there and let your face rest because you're concentrating on something else. So mm. everyone looks like, they're like miserable and they're not enjoying it and you as a performer or me as a performer feels like everyone in the audience is aware of how it, everyone else is feeling and so you're just there and you're like oh god if if not for yourselves then for me look like you're enjoying it so that at least i can get through this without feeling like it's the most fucking humiliating experience <laughs> of my life uh, but with, uh, what i noticed when i was at the at the at the band was i felt incredible it was it was brilliant. I was a gig, and and in between every song, everyone would cheer. Um, and I knew that from my experience, when I do a gig, I'd be like, everyone, you know, put your hands in the air, clap your hands, whatever, you know, you'd get the audience going, and they would do it for like the first ten seconds of a song, and then they would go back to arms folded, staring at you for three minutes, and then you get into the next one, and um, and what I noticed from being in the audience was everyone was enjoying it. 
but it was that as well you know it was still we're not going to clap for four minutes what the fuck do you think we are right but we are still enjoying it and it sort of gave me it gave me sort of like a different perspective on it mm. sometimes if they're sometimes if they don't look like they're enjoying it they're still enjoying it I can comment on that as a DJ (laughs) and when I play between the acts and I'm looking out and I'm like, why aren't people losing their shit to like this all time epic song that I'm playing right now? But a lot of it is perseverance, um, preservance, sorry, of energy is a part of it. And it's also that thing, Nick, of like, just because they're not going crazy like this every second of the song, it doesn't mean they're not enjoying it. It's just only really crazy people do that. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? If you go to an hour long gig or a 90 minute gig, if you're there for the whole thing going Way! for the entire thing, <laughs> maybe you're not quite right in the head, you know? Um, and most people who are there, although they might not look like they're having the best time of their lives, often I've heard people walking out of a gig who look miserable as hell all night going, that was amazing, wasn't it? Wasn't that such a great night? Just not everybody is expressive in that way. And it turns out that not everyone is hyper aware of what they're doing with their faces at all times. Yeah, that's and just that weirdos said, like us. Yeah. And if there is a, if there is someone going crazy for a song from beginning to end and it's just them, that's worse than if it was no one. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's yeah. just like, what? oh, God, I don't... <laughs> I, this this gig would be going a lot better if you weren't here in fact <laughs> which i know you would say i know you would say i think it's it's nice to have that freedom to sort of like be able to comment on the gig as it is going and to mm. go well this isn't going well at all and it is your fault yeah because i i've done this before guys and it went well <laughs> yeah. i think it's that sounds liberating to me so it's something i might consider i just don't have the comedy my guitar player is the comedy, so I, I let him do that kind of stuff. But uh, I think it's great, too, what you said, because I go to a lot of shows myself. As much as I'm a musician, a performer, I enjoy watching it, too. But it's true. You learn a lot more about your craft when you're on both sides of it. And I think observing how, you know, if you go to see a stand-up comedian, like, you can't help but analyze it. You might be enjoying yourself, too, but you analyze it. That's why when I go see a band or a gig, if I'm up close where the band can see me, I'm participating with my face. I'm cheering them on because I know how that feels. But if I'm not there and I'm not in the mood, I'll fucking hide in the back near the bar and still be at the gig and enjoy the shit out of myself. But I don't want the band seeing me just relaxing. Yeah, so sure. I think I'm, I'm hyper aware of that too. But I think it's both sides of the stage is very important to know as a performer. I think you just get better at your craft by paying attention to that stuff. Yeah, I agree. Let's discuss. Let's go straight in on this because I want to. Um, I want to talk to you both about this because, uh, like I said at the start, I bonded with both of you over your openness about mental health issues in your art and just in life. Um, Nick, when we first met, I'll never forget this moment for as long as I live. It was such a beautiful moment. We were doing our podcast. The mics were on. We were in it, and you said to me you'd had kind of anxieties about the day, and you know you knew you had this long interview booked in, and you weren't particularly looking forward to it. You know you're in a bit of a weird headspace, and you said when you pulled up at the Gibson Guitar Showroom where we were going to do the interview, in the car you got out, you saw me, you saw I had a Wayne's World cap on, and you kind of had a sigh of relief, and you said to yourself, "Oh, today's going to be okay. This guy looks like he's a friendly person. He's my kind of guy," and you instantly felt comfortable, just that it was me who was going to be doing the interview, and that meant so much. Not that just that you saw that and recognized that in me, but that you were vulnerable and honest enough in the interview to say that um it really touched me to this day and i just i guess i'd like to kind of hear both of you connect a little bit as artists on how you use your you know songs and your stand-up routine and material 
to express these thoughts which you know you have to get off your chest because you were saying to me the other day nick like some comedians have their jokes and they're good and that's fine but you're someone very much like jesse who needs to express these thoughts these feelings these emotions that you're going through like it's an absolute essential part of your art to get this shit out um is it something you've always done in your stand-up material nick is write about this stuff because obviously now it's a very hot topic isn't it but you strike me as someone who's maybe been talking about this stuff for longer than most well before i was um i was a comedian um i was in bands when i was at school um and i used to write music you know i used to write songs when i was um you know a teenager into being an adult um and i used to paint and i write poetry and you know i do a bit of everything i used to write theater and plays um and and i've always been creative and i think if i wasn't a stand-up comedian or if i wasn't doing stand-up right now i would shift gears and i'd do something else i think i do lots of things basically i'm um which is good in a way because I never get bored. It's like, oh, I've just done a tour as a stand-up comedian and now I'm going to do an album or now I'm going to... Or know, four or, albums. Or, or four <laughs> albums or now I'm going to write a play or, or whatever, you know? And I've got that option. But it also means that it's kind of... Um, it means it's difficult to pigeonhole me, I guess. And so, so it's kind of like... As a stand-up comedian, I do talk about mental health. But I tell you what, I tell you, so the show that you saw, Jesse, was a show that I wrote a couple of years ago, uh, 2019. Uh, it was called Phoenix from the Flames. And um, in what we have in Edinburgh, which seems to be different from what you have in America, is, uh, you know, we do... A comedy festival every year where we have to write an hour of material every year we take it up to edinburgh we get judged by the critics and then um there's a lucky few people that are hot that year and they get taken away by the tv industry and sitcoms are made or uh, sketch shows do you know what i mean it's just kind of like and then it, if that doesn't happen for you then you go back and you write another hour and you take it up to edinburgh and you do that every year until you either make it or quit or do something else, work out another way of doing what you do. But the, the cycle really is August. You do a month where you do an hour of comedy and then you tour it for the rest of the year, another one the next year, and you keep doing it. It's like a cycle. It's like bringing an album out, I suppose, and then writing another one while you're touring it. And then, um, uh, and, and so, I'd done that for a few years. Um, it's I'd done that for a few years, but I'd taken about five years off. I mean, what happens generally in America is, like Jerry Seinfeld did a whole show where he was like saying, "Oh, I'm I'm burning that hour." He had an hour that he toured for about twenty years around all the clubs. That's how he would make his money, you know. As a jobbing comedian, you've got an hour in your back pocket and you do it, but you don't do it on TV. You don't make a special out of it. That's your hour. That's what you do. And he was just like, I'm going to write a whole new hour. And so he did his hour and then he wrote a new hour. And we were all sort of like scratching our heads a bit, like going, but you, 
you'd write an hour every year. You know, it's difficult to talk about him now, but one of the things that Louis C.K. did was he wrote an hour every year. And it was kind of like this thing where people are going, oh, he writes an hour every year. And it's kind of like, I think as a comedian, that's what you do. You write an hour every year and that's, that's what you put in your shop window and you go, this is, this is what I'm doing at the moment. Again, to use that band analogy, it would be like a band just touring their one album forever <laughs> and just like never yeah. writing another one. Or, or greatest hits, you know, you, you, you get you get one of those uh, legacy acts and they're kind of like, it's, you know, you, you know, you go and see Kiss and you're really, oh, it's Kiss. But it's kind of like you've got to play the uh, slightly different with music because you want to hear the songs again. But with yeah. comedy, it's like, don't not the same jokes he's still doing the same jokes from 10 years ago but with like a band it's like hey where are those songs from 10 years ago you know? <laughs> yeah 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 it's um but yeah so as a comedian you're just kind of like you're you're constantly constantly sort of generating stuff so it's sort of like different from how it seems to be in america to how it is in england but i hadn't written a new show in like five years so i wrote this show phoenix from the flames i did a show i i've always talked about mental health so in my poetry in my songs in my plays that i wrote ever since i was a teenager it's all sort of like as you're a teenager i think you can look back on it and you can kind of like go oh god it's a bit cringy i was i was sort of like an open wound and i was writing all this teenage angst onto a i think as an artist it's good to hold sort of as a, as a human being interacting with hu other human beings, it's good to put that into a context so that you, it's good to acknowledge the fact that other people are feeling these things as well. You know, your feelings aren't more important than someone else's feelings. Hmm. You know? But what as an artist you're able to do and what I've noticed through getting up on stage and saying stuff is that when you try and pander to people and tell them what you think they want to hear that's when it fails and when you go on stage and you talk about something that's very specific to you you're not going on and you're saying what my experience you know my experience is more important than your experience you're going on or the way i would try and phrase it is that i would go on and i would talk about something that is very specific and personal to me and because of that everyone will be able to relate to it in some way you know whether it's, it's honest the, whether it's the exact same thing and they've gone oh i was on those pills or um i went through that uh, th that emotional thing or whether it's that i've gone through my own struggle and i can recognize in you that you're going through that struggle so i always feel that um i think is i think in i think in comedy but i think in art I think that there is there's there's a way that you can go through your life and you can cannibalize it so that you're constantly using stuff as a way to further yourself at your own at the detriment to your own health mm. your own mental health your own physical health you kind of like go this is great i can use this and you're sort of putting yourself in a vulnerable position and I think I think it's dangerous. I think you can kind of like go on and you can kind of um, you're 
you're almost like commercializing your own emotions and you think right i've got to follow it up whereas what i would try and do or what i try and do is i try and only talk about stuff that's personal to me if i feel that it has value to the audience mm. so rather than go out and just be kind of like oh fucking hell my ex is a bitch and i hate her for this this and this you know who's getting anything out of that that's just me getting revenge on and i haven't got any exes that are bitches either so i that's that's plucked that out of the air but what i'm saying is that rather than going on stage and grinding your axe and just kind of like oh i'm so pissed off about this person and i want personal revenge or you know i, I just want to badmouth someone or whatever rather than making it kind of like about that you kind of like make it into something that's it's personal to you but it's universal mm. to an audience and that way you're kind of helping people so that so i did a i've always talked about mental health but maybe not as intricately as the last show that i did uh, the phoenix from the flames show i think before i've always sort of like used it as a color on my palette of stuff that i can joke about because it's something that i go through and then i did something on tv and i had people say oh great you're making fun of depression and i took that it was only like a couple of comments but it was enough for me to kind of like look at what i did and just be like am i making fun of depression am i making fun of suicide am i making fun of these things or am i expressing how i feel about these things and i sort of like reason that there there may be a gray area or there may be a there may be a gap between what comes out of my mouth and what goes into someone's ears and the way i'm presenting it and i sort of wanted to i wanted to do a show that was just honest about how i felt and i and it wasn't necessarily that i was going for punchlines and the fact that the show is funny is great because I made it funny, but it didn't start off with, I'm going to do a funny show. It started off with, I'm going to do a show that's about what I've been through because, you know, I tell it, I, I mean, it's different with stand-up comedy to being in a band, I suppose, Jesse, because um, you're one person on stage. I do a lot of gigs in pubs or bars and I'm upstairs and it's me on a stage and then I come off the stage and there's a guy in the corner and he pays me and I'm with the audience. The audience can talk to me and they can grab at me and they can say, hey, Nick. And a lot of the time after gigs, I'll get people that come up to me and they talk to me about their mental health problems. And I'll be like, I'm just a guy. Hmm. Like, if you get anything from what I do on stage and if that if that encourages you to talk to people and uh, to talk to your friends, talk to your family, talk to a professional, get help. If what I talk about on stage opens up that conversation for you, then that's great. But when I'm off stage, I, I don't want the responsibility of giving you bad advice yeah. and, and damaging you. Let's definitely go in on that, Jesse, because you're somebody that uses your platform to talk about it so openly. But again, in that same breath, you're obviously not a paid professional trained medical, you know, staff member. So you have that burden too. What's your experience in that avenue there, there's so much i want to comment on i'm going to I try my best to circle back to one thing real quick um talking about basically being relatable to people in comedy 
And I think the genius of the good ones that really nail it, like George Collar and Chris Rock, they're, they're dropping this wisdom, this knowledge, this something that you can really hold on to, but still being able to make you laugh while sort of being relatable, blowing your mind, et cetera, et cetera. I think that's the pure genius of people who do it correctly. And I definitely see that in you. And I definitely can relate to those things because I suffer from depression, anxiety, um, and you pulled off really well. So I commend you for that. Um, my brain is just like, ah, so much I want to say. That letter, the bully letter that you read, and oh, yeah. then at the end of it, I was crying. It's the, one of the funniest things, but the letter itself was so well written. Yeah, so there's yeah. just gems of like, even the songs that you play, I can see the sheer talent, but it you managed to make a comedy. I don't know how you do that. It's brilliant. So I just wanted to say that first and foremost, love it. Um, and you're right. I'm exactly the same way. I get approached by people because I do make myself available pre-pandemic. I would go out to the bus. I would go out to the the pub attached to the venue and walk in and have a drink and allow myself to be, you know, with around people that were at the show. And it's been beautiful and amazing, but there's a certain burden there. And it started to become problematic for me because I, it was affecting my mental health because people would just unload on me mm. and tell me these like horrible, deep, like crazy stories and sort of look to me to like be the answer. And I would get messages. I mean, just inundated with it for years to a point where I had my own little mental breakdown. And I was like, I can't be that person. I had to dial it back. And I love what you said. It's like, if I've opened that door for you to like get help or get conversation or have those, those necessary therapy sessions, brilliant, but don't look to me to be your savior. That's, that's a heavy load to bear. But I guess that's sort of the end result sometimes when you are being that honest and you are allowing that, you know, mental health to sort of have its own um, place in the conversation in your art. I think that's super important, but it's tough. It's a, it's a double-edged sword, you know, to be genuine in your art and to affect people to such a deep level that they can't help but look at you and go, help. <laughs> and it's such a desperate thing, but it... There are times when I just, I just literally, I can't, I'm sorry, I can't do this right now. It's too much. And you got to be careful of that. I mean, it's, I'm, I'm very proud of that. You know, I'm very sort of like, I, it's com through comedy. I mean, you can, you can, you can help people from the point of view where they were having a shit day. They come and see you. They laugh for an hour. They leave. They feel, they feel better to the point that you can actually discuss important important things and it's sort of like you say I, I, that you're not their savior i'm not your savior and it's kind of like i'm like almost the opposite where it's sort of like don't look to me for advice because i'm a fuck up mm -hmm. do you know what i mean and through me fucking up and bumbling my way through my life and working out what works and what doesn't work i'll stand up on stage and i'll tell you about it and i will talk to you about it um but you don't want me to be, if I fix myself, then do you know what I mean? It's just kind of like, um, I, I can't, I can't have that dialogue with you anymore because it, it means that it's, it's, it's it, you end up inside of in, in this cycle where it's just kind of like, I think, I think what I got to a point with the, with the shows that I was writing was, it's kind of like, I want to, I want to be better. I want to, I want to work on my own.
no mental health. I want to sort of fix myself. And yeah, I got provided with a people asking for help. And it's kind of like when you have someone that writes you uh, a message uh, on social media and says that they're going to kill themselves, it's kind of like you kind of, um, you want to help them. Do you know what I mean? It's kind of like who, who you, you can't, you can't kind of like, I, I can't shut a door on people like that, you know? I think it's just kind of like, oh, fuck. But, but at the same time, it's kind of like, you go, I'm, a, I'm an entertainer. I'm a stand-up comedian. And I, and, I, and I experience things and I write about them. I try and make them funny. I go up on stage and try and make them relatable. I try and interact with the audience. I, um, I try and provide something that's positive for people to grab a hold of. But yeah, it's it's... It's a, it's a real struggle, and it's and I, like you, it's kind of like I would I I was very open with people, and I've retreated a lot, you know, because I don't feel like it's that's not what it's not that's not what I'm in it for. That's not the fun side of it. That's not like the you know the VIP reception areas and. The, and the red carpets and it's like that's what i'm in it for you know and that's that's not what i'm in it for and and dealing with other people's mental health problems it's it's kind of it's it's very serious and it's very important and i can barely deal with mine mm. but and, and I, I i don't know i just find it is i think i'm sort of like because of the pandemic has had such a sort of like a large uh, a large break on kind of like getting out there and meeting people I don't know what it will be like going back, but um, but I know that one of the things that I found gratifying about the show was that I do the show, and um, and it would be less. This was sort of like the biggest tour that I did, and it was less people coming up to me afterwards, and unloading, and it was more people coming up and saying, "Oh." the way you said that, that related to me and, or I'd get a message after the fact and it would be kind of like, I talked to my family about my mental health problems for the first time uh, after I saw your show. And it's just, it's just, it's just this weird blend of being an entertainer and then feeling this immense amount of responsibility um, because you don't want to say the wrong thing and make it worse for people. And you don't want to give them the, the wrong advice you know i'm careful in the show to say this worked for me or this didn't work for me but it may work for you you know i think what's cool now is because people are talking about it more because it's more in the you know public discourse it does seem like people are taking more of an active role in it in their own lives and so maybe that's why you've seen a switch from people who a few years ago might have come up to you and said, here's what I've been through, oh my God, what do I do? Now it's more like, I've been going through that too, and hearing you talk about it has helped me realise that maybe this is what I need to do as well. Does that make sense? So people are more active in their their recovery and their well-being, um, which I want to get to in a minute. I want to circle back on one other thing very quickly, Jesse. Nick mentioned something like, which I thought was brilliant earlier about commercialising your emotions and cannibalising your emotions. I wanted to get your take on that and maybe hear the pair of you discuss that a bit between, you know, obviously just wanting to express yourself in an honest way 
and then putting yourself into situations because you think perhaps it's going to, you know, further or better your art and, and not doing that. Does that make sense? Like trying to walk that line between being an authentic artist and not just putting yourself in harmful situations for the, you know, greater good of your art. Yeah, I guess for me, writing a record is is one of the most intense and uncomfortable things for me because I do write so deeply about suicide, death, you know, addiction, all the things that I've been through. I, I legitimately wear it on my sleeve. It's kind of what I've known, become known for is the guy who addresses mental health constantly. Um, well, not constantly, but a lot for what sure. I do. And um, when I'm writing a record, I don't just write it and I'm like, oh, this is what happened or this is what's going on. I, I live it. I live inside it to the point where some of these albums I've written, I was actually suicidal while writing them, like just dark, dark, dark shit. Uh, two records ago, an album called Incarnate. I mean, I was in one of the worst spots of my life and I, I just let it all out. No, I didn't, there was no filter on this shit. And I think almost to a detriment at the time, because I couldn't just put something out that I didn't really believe in or like fully embody. And looking back on it, you know, uh, for my mental health, I probably should have dialed it back a little bit, but I just can't not write that way. And I've tried to tell people's stories and become more of a storyteller lyricist as opposed to like, it's just all about me. Um, but I think it is a fine line and I don't know how to do it any different. So every time I write a record, it's like hell, it's fucking hell for me. And then when I'm done, I go through a little adjustment period and then I, I'll listen to my shit and I'll fucking cry and get drunk and like just it's a mess. And then when it's all done and said and I'm out in the road and I'm finally exercising those demons on stage and I'm getting it out, I start to feel better. It's this fucking crazy process that I put myself through. Um, and I wouldn't say it's for success. Like I'm not doing it because I think that's what's going to make me money, but I just don't know any other way. And I think that that's become my trademark and I don't know how to sort of break that cycle or how do I draw creativity without crucifying myself on a piece of music. So that's something that I'm sort of dealing with right now, moving forward with my career because everything I've done, it's just been painful. Um, but I don't know if that's me, you know, sort of sabotaging myself or, or cannibalizing my art. But um, I think it's just I can't fucking help it. I have to be miserable to write inspirational I think shit. It's, I think it's I think it's incredibly complicated. I mean, because um, people people say to me, and I think maybe even Matt said at the beginning of the thing that you know I write about mental health, and it's kind of like I kind of do, but I. I write about what's happening to me at that time. And it just turns out that a lot of the time um, I'm going through some sort of mental health crisis. You know, um, I think when I look back at my career, I can retrospectively look back at everything and I can go, oh, I've always written about mental health, but I haven't necessarily gone into it thinking that, you know, I've gone into it writing whatever it was that I was writing at that time. But because I was depressed or because I was suicidal or whatever, I've funneled that into the writing. It's become apparent in the, in the art. I think even if I sat down and wrote a thing that wasn't about mental health, there would still be an aspect of it that would be visible or apparent 
that mm. this person has got depression even if it's not about depression it's there it's always there and i think it's kind of like what happens when i'm better what do i write about then what is that, that there is a fear there right and it's kind of like well maybe i won't write anything and maybe i won't need it i know when i was younger like and i'm talking like in my 20s um what i found was when i was depressed I would always try and get something positive out of it. So if I was depressed, I'd write a play about it, or I'd write a poem, or I'd write a load of songs about it. Or I'd, I'd use that depression as a fuel in order to get something good out of it. Right? If I'm going to be depressed for you know uh, three months, then I'm not going to let that three months be a wasted three months. I'm going to get something out of it, and um, and so there you have kind of like you're turning depression into a positive where you're kind of like you're being able to write about it and you're getting material out of it. And it's kind of like, it's, it's actually not that the depression is good, but you're actually using it for good. I got to a point recently where I was even too depressed to even get anything positive out of, out of it. And I just came to a standstill and I was just like, I'm not even writing anymore. And I've always had writing and I've not, and I don't even have writing anymore because I'm too depressed to even write anything. What's the point? um and and that that's that's another problem but it's kind of like i think i think if you're rolling your sleeves up at the beginning of an album and you're thinking well i better get depressed because i i've got to, <laughs> i've got to write an album and that's when it's a problem do you yeah. know what i mean yeah but if it's just a part of you i you know i i look forward to a day where i write something that that has nothing to do with mental health that is like and i think actually because um i think this this last show was kind of like me underlining it and like this is where i stand on my mental health this is who i am this is where i am watch this show and then everything else will make sense and i never have to talk about it ever again just everything will be informed by this show. and that's what i tried to use the show was to sort this is done on it. If you think I've been making fun of depression in the past, watch this show because then you'll realize where it's coming from. It's coming from a genuine place where I'm trying to connect with an audience and trying to make, I'm trying to help people feel better, but at the mm. same time, I'm trying to express myself. And it's like this complicated thing. And if I never talk about it again, um, and it will, it will probably always be. I mean, this is this is the thing. It's kind of like I've been dealing with depression, and you know suicidal thoughts and um and mental health issues although mental what what the fuck is a mental health issue it's just a thing that everyone talks about now like it's this buzzword mental health mental health what the fuck is it i mean is it uh obsessive compulsive disorder is it adhd is it you know is it depression is it uh anxiety what is it what you know it's kind of like everyone uses mental health now like they know what they're talking about and it for me it's even more confusing because it's just kind of like it's just taking everyone's mental health issues and just branding it mental health where in actual fact you could have a very specific mental health issue or you could be dealing with three mental health issues at a time and here's a pill that will help you with whatever it is and it's kind of like in england you don't even get diagnosed do you know what i mean you have to fight to get i'm in the process of fighting to get diagnosed to find out what the fuck is actually wrong with me so that i can actually start medicating myself to fix the problems that i've got rather than this blanket problem which is mental health problems or depression it's like what the fuck is wrong with me i don't i don't know what the fuck is wrong with me right and it's just kind of like 
what am I saying? I'm, I'm just, what am I saying? What am I saying? I'm right saying now, you're saying it's a complex issue and there's a lot to take in and consider. And it isn't just as simple as going, let's talk about it and everything will be okay. And it's just this one thing. Yeah. It's just, yeah. I think I've sort of like lost my thread a little bit because I, I, I just, I'm just, I'm so, I'm so, I'm sort of so angry with the fact that I've, I've never, I've never really, I've never, there's something wrong with me and I've never known what's wrong with me. This is what I was going to say is there was a switch that happened probably last year, maybe the year before, where I've been trying to fix my mental health problems. I've been trying to fix my depression. I've been trying to go, how do I stop being depressed? Mm. And how do I be happy? How do I be like a normal, regular person? And for a start, what the fuck is that anyway? But how do I stop being depressed and how do i switch that around and how do i cure this disease right and then maybe maybe last year it was just like i'm probably not going to cure myself that's not what the goal is now the goal isn't how do i cure myself the, and there's an ice cream van outside my window while i'm talking about depression <laughs> playing, <laughs> a beautiful juxtaposition playing, if ever playing, there was one playing it's now or never um <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, I, oh, do you know what? All I needed was an ice cream. It's a sign, dude. But but I'm probably I'm probably not going to fix my depression, so I'm going to stop. That's not my goal anymore. Mm. And I think it was really helpful for myself to actually just go, "Oh, you're probably always going to be depressed, Nick. Let's be real. You've been depressed your whole life." You know, from when you were a child, you were depressed. So when you're an adult, you're depressed. You're probably always going to be depressed, right? So stop trying to cure it. And now let's 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 work out how to cope with it. You know? I love you know, I love that. I think that's so fucking accurate. And that's honestly one of the reasons why I don't want to medicate. I find other ways to deal with it. Um, my depression and anxiety has become my muse. I've learned to dance with it. And it's not something I don't think I'll ever get rid of either. Um, and I've kind of accepted that. And that was a huge relief for me. So you mentioned that this happened to you. Is this during the pandemic, obviously, is what you're referring to. And I wanted to touch on the fact that you said you needed to retreat sometimes. You put so much out there and you need to retreat. And that's totally who I am. And during the pandemic, I learned a ton about myself because it was the first time I was able to really retreat off stage for a long time. So maybe if you could speak on that, because I'm really curious about that aspect as well but what you just said to me that's fucking spot on like you're not gonna fix this or or get over it or it's not gonna go away and you're gonna become normal and happy i don't think that's the goal either especially as an artist you learn how to work with it i love that i i think i think that it was it was it was you know it's another thing to beat yourself up about is the fact that i'm still depressed you know how how why can't i get why can't i get over this why can't i get through this and then you realize oh it's just this is sort of who you are and you're gonna have to sort of embrace that and you're gonna have to there's no point in being in denial and thinking it's just sort of like um you know an unwanted guest you're kind of like gonna have to 
you know, set up the spare bedroom for it. <laughs> kind of, all right, this is yours now. You know? <laughs> um, uh, I think with what happened with the pandemic, the thing is, as a comedian, it's, it's, it's difficult because you're, um, somebody said this to me, somebody, somebody, this is somebody else said this to me, um, but it's kind of like, it's very personal as a comedian because you're selling yourself, you know, you're not going out every day uh, selling uh, ice cream, right? So you're not you're not going out and going. This is the ice cream, and then people say, "Oh, we don't like this ice cream." And you, go, yeah, no, this ice cream isn't that great. Uh, we've got some more ice cream coming in next week. You know, you're not an ice cream salesman. You're a personality salesman. You're selling yourself, and every other comedian is doing the same thing. Right? They're all out there, and they're selling themselves. And if someone doesn't like what you're selling, it is personal because you're not selling a product. You're selling you. You know, and it might be kind of like an extension of you, or it might be a persona, for instance, that I put on that that you're selling, but you're selling you. And it's it's just an incredibly brutal, difficult um, uh, business uh, to get into. And, you know, um, and what happened with the pandemic was uh, there was a moment where, oh, fucking hell, it was it was I was pitching some TV stuff before it all hit and um then it hit and then all of that got put on standby and it's kind of like okay and they said meanwhile now considering we're not allowed to film anything with big crews at the moment um have, have you got any ideas that might work that we could kind of like film during lockdown and then i go away and i'm sitting down and i'm thinking ah oh, geez what can what can we make that's that's really straightforward and i suppose if i got tested and they got tested and we both didn't you know i thought of like this thing where we're both sat in a car two guys sat in a car and then what happens is you know you've got the crew and all the crew are outside and they'd all be like socially and i'm like this comedian that's done done tv bit of tv uh and i'm sat here on my own in my flat during the pandemic trying to single-handedly work out a way to save the television industry with my great idea about two people sat in a car with a crew outside the car. And then I just stopped and I was just like, you're not the guy that's going to solve this problem. <laughs> it's not, I mean? it's not on your it's, shoulders, is it? That's not your not burden. On my shoulders. I mean, there's, there's, there's people above you in the pecking order that are working on this, Nick. You know what I mean? It's like, uh, it, you know, David Schwimmer's probably going to make a TV show before you are, you know, uh, it's like, this isn't my responsibility. And then I was like, right. And then I looked around at what a lot of other comedians were doing and everyone was doing stuff to, I think there's, there's you know, you got extroverts and you got introverts. I think, um, I think I'm kind of an introvert that can switch it on when I go on stage. I feel really alive when I'm on stage but when I'm off stage, I find like going out incredibly draining. And I find, uh, and the other thing that I've kind of, the other thing that I've sort of learned over the last, you know, year or so is I've tried to sort of like work out who I am and what sort of, what is wrong with me. And, you know, there's like, I think I'm an empath where you go out and you're in a large group of people and it's just so overwhelming and you become sort of like drained and exhausted. And I 
relate to other people to such a degree that I take their side over my own. You know, mm-hmm. I'm just kind of like, oh, God, I'm so super aware of like crushing other people's feelings or creating that moment in other people's lives that they can't let go of. That's like, you know, I, I'm, I, I, I walk on eggshells the whole time and I'm sort of like I, I'm overwhelmed with it. And it's kind of like I looked around at what other comedians were doing at the beginning of lockdown. Everyone super hard trying to keep keep it going. And, uh, you know, it's just kind of like, well, I can't entertain you in uh, theatre, so I'm going to do it in my kitchen. And, I'll, you know, and I looked at it all and I was just kind of like, and it's like, that's, I was really cynical about it. And I regret that because I think if it helped them, then that's brilliant. And mm. if it helped the people that, that enjoyed it, that's brilliant. Um, but it wasn't for me. And I said, do you know what? This is actually a luxury. Um, in terms of being like a creative and a, uh, and someone that goes out there and uh, has to keep working, self-employed, has to keep working, otherwise it dies. You know, I went on holiday a couple of years ago and I knew that all of the other comedians were still working. And that's what it's been like for 20 years. Mm-hmm. You know? And so when this hit, it was like, no one's working. No one's doing anything. So we're all allowed to have this little break. Mm. And and you're I, not going to get left behind because that's often that thing, isn't it? It's the fear of, oh, if I take a day off, this person's going to get the gig. And yeah. we live in this constant, like hyper state of fear, don't we, that we're going to miss out on an opportunity if we're not always doing the hustle. I, I mean, I always say that I'm not competitive, but in actual fact, I am competitive. Well, you have I to be, right, to survive. You, have you, to you haven't chosen to be. It's just you have to be. But I hate that aspect of it. Me too. And so what I've always tried to do is I've tried to do something that other people don't do. Mm -hmm. And if they do it, then I'll try and do something else that other people don't do. And I, I can sort of like, uh, not, I can choose not to compete that way by kind of doing something that other people don't do by being, well, and also let's call a spade a spade by being original. And yeah. thinking what, uh, what, cause you know, a lot of comedians, as we sort of spoke about the other day, um, and it's the same with bands, a lot of these people who are popular and successful aren't doing too much that's radically different to everybody else. And that's why it all works. And that's why they all achieve is cause it's fairly packageable and sellable. And it's, you know, it's those people that take that stand out to the left or the right and come up with something that's brave and fresh and exciting that don't always perhaps get the commercial success because they're not easy to sell, but what they're doing is exciting and engaging and, you know, nobody else is doing it. Sure. But I like all that stuff as well. I like, I like mainstream stuff. Yeah. I enjoy mainstream stuff. Um, and I like weird stuff as well. Um, and I don't, like I was trying to explain at the beginning badly, but it's like, I don't set out to do something weird. I sit down and I write something that I think is the most obvious funny thing. But You're just a big weirdo. <laughs> I'm weird. Just, do you know what I mean? Yeah. But, 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 but going back to the pandemic, when that hit and we didn't do anything, it was just like, I can try and keep things going. I can kind of like, you know, do stuff in my flat and entertain my fans and, you know, but they've got other stuff that they're dealing with and everyone's going through a pandemic. And I was just like, do you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to stop and I'm going to use this time 
as a time for like self-reflection and mm. to work on all of my mental health stuff, which I've put on hold because I can make money out of it. It's my career. Oh, fucking hell. I'll write a show about it. And it's actually while I'm making money off of it and while I'm on tour and while I'm going out and while I'm meeting people every night and I'm busy and I'm doing stuff, I'm distracting myself from the actual fact that I'm mentally ill and I'm in pain and having the pandemic and not being able to perform as an artist or whatever um, meant that I could sort of like spend some time looking at myself. And I did that and I've done that and it's not over and I'm not fixed, but I think I've given myself the tools to sort of understand myself a bit better so that now I can work on myself in parallel to my career rather than push it aside for my career. Mm. And, um, and you know, after a few months of the pandemic, like everyone else, I was sick of it and I wanted to get back to work. And I'm happy and I'm looking forward to getting back to work. But if I'd have pushed on through the entire pandemic without that, that time to sort of like reflect on who I am and what I'm doing and where I am and what point of my life and career and journey I'm on. Then if I hadn't taken that time to reflect, then I would be just as fucked as I was at the beginning. And I think I'm fucked. I just think that I'm getting less fucked or maybe, maybe, maybe thought I was, and then I started looking at it and then I realized I'm really fucked. But understanding the problem, understanding how fucked you are is half the journey, right? Mm. The people that do the most damage are the people that are so fucked up and they don't even realise it. And they're going around fucking everyone else up. And you kind of like go, oh, shit. I'm, and also, this, you know, we are selling ourselves and we're not all fragile artists. You know, there are people out there that are merciless, that will stamp on other people to get what they want and you've got to decide do you want to be that person or do you want to forge your own path my mate pat my mate pat my lovely mate pat who's canadian lives in new york and he always said you know there's two ways to get a, there's two ways right you've got two lines i'll draw i'll draw this line and this line and they're on a piece of paper right and you go this is your line and that's their line and how do you make your line longer than their line right and uh, is what you can do is you can rip their line in half, right? Now it's half as big as your line, right? Or you can just draw your line longer. And you go, that's amazing. It's not about what, what I enjoy most about being creative and what I enjoy most about what I do and um, my approach to stuff, which isn't a deliberate approach. It's just the way that I... I find things painful. If I go over there, then it hurts. And if I go out there, then it's painful. And I don't, you know, if I can avoid doing all of those things, how can I still operate? And, and the way that I work is through trial and error and through learning what I don't want. And then, and then I found it that way. It's not been a deliberate thing. It's just been a thing that has happened. And what I realize is it's not about competing with other people. It's just about forging my own path. I always said, you know, if you're if you're up a ladder looking over at everyone else's gardens, then you're going to let your own one overgrow. Right. And I just want to focus on my own garden and make that as special as possible and then let everyone else do what they want with their thing. And I find that is comforting to me when I stop looking at what everyone else is doing and I just focus on me 
and what I want to do and what I want to put out there. And that is like a, a, a big thing. But like you're in an industry, I say I'm mentally ill. I'm in an industry filled with mentally ill people that are pretending that they're not mentally ill. <laughs> Everyone's fucking each other up and it's horrible. And you kind of like, you just always try and, you know, what I've learned is that you always try and act with kindness. You always kind of like to try and do the right thing by you and by other people. And then, and it's not always easy and you do, you don't always get it right, but that's the intent. And that's, that's, that's what I, uh, that's what I try and do. I mean, it's, you know, knowing that you're fucked up is half the battle. Mm. I think that everything you just said is sheer wisdom. And that's just comes with experience, you know, getting to know yourself better helps you to deal with other people and the quote unquote competition of being a creative. And I don't see it as competition. I, I can't see it as competition. I think the moment you stop seeing it as a competition with other people is when I think your art starts to really speak truth, like real truth, truth that's going to like break through people's barriers and, and inspire other people to seek the same. And I think that that when you're speaking actual wisdom to yourself and to others that shows that totally shows. And I think that just comes again with experience and age. And I think I can relate exactly to what you said about the pandemic. And I, as much as that was a really rough time, still is sort of a rough time all around for everybody. I needed that shit. I needed it so bad. I remember coming off a tour with tears in my eyes and just being completely exhausted, feeling lost and having the the music and the touring and the fans adoration taken away it really made me go well who am i without that and you're right i, I think i was running from certain things and having that taken away really made me stare it down and and i did it i actually took a break from everything i got sober for like three months which is the first time and i don't even know how long i didn't have a drink or anything and i was able to sit with myself and fucking work through it and it was hard was super fucking hard. But the moment I took that first step and started to go, oh, I said, what's going on? Like, let's clean house. What the fuck is going on with me? And I'm still working on it, but that wouldn't have happened if I hadn't stopped. It wouldn't have happened. And it's one of the best things to ever happen to me because I learned to let go. And I had a moment where I was like, if this all goes away, I'll figure it out. I was clinging to it for dear life, I think, during the beginning of all this. Um, and I think coming into your own wisdom, which you truly have, that's the way, not only is your art going to be affected better, but you as a person and the people that you surround yourself in your personal life, that's going to blossom and grow. And I'm happy to hear that you went through that because I went through a very similar thing and it's, it's a great feeling, but yeah, there's a lot of work to do still, you know? Yeah. Um, but I think it's, as long as you're sort of aware that it's that and it's not an easy fix and it is it is hard i haven't you know i got through last year 2020 and i was like and i felt like by by like the end of the year i was like yeah i think i'm kind of like getting to grips with it and what i realized was that i hadn't even started i was you know i'd fucked up so badly by the end of the, by the end of the year and i i was just like i am in an absolute mess i thought Oh, I'm a bit of a mess. I can get this. But I realized I was such a mess by the end of the year. And I thought I'd been kind of like, you know, putting on a, not even putting on a brave face, but sort of just sort of like working my way through it. And oh, yeah. It turned out that I went around the corner and it was like, 
Oh fuck! Yeah, it's it's just a, it's just yeah, it's fucking absolutely fucking mental. And so, really, the hard work started at the beginning of this year, mm. and um, uh, and it's kind of like enjoyable. But what I, it's enjoyable, sort of like it's been it's been awful. It's been the work I've been. Even recently, even up until like a couple of weeks ago, it's the worst I've ever really felt. Mm. Um, uh, but it's just weird. You have conversations with people. And one conversation that I can have with someone that I haven't talked to in a, in a long time can help me more understand who I am than, you know, four years in therapy. You know, you're kind of like banging your head against this thing saying, I feel like this, this is what's happening to me. You know, uh, you know, th these are the problems that I keep getting into. These are like the, the, the cycles that I get into. And then you have one conversation with someone and they say, oh yeah, I've got, um, I've got depression and anxiety. And you go, oh, well, tell me about that. And then they tell you what, and you go, I feel I'm feeling those things. And then you go, hang on a minute. Maybe I don't have what I thought I have. And maybe I have something entirely different, but it's, it, you know, you find help in sort of like weird places. And it's all about sort of like being honest and opening up and sort of, I know who I, it's, it's kind of weird. I don't think I am, I don't think I, as a child hoping and looking forward to the future and imagining who you're going to grow up into. I don't know if I would have imagined being this person or this version of who I am. And I'm trying to get, I'm trying to make sense of where I am and who I am and what I've been through and what I'm going towards. And, um, and it might not be something that I would have chosen but you're, it's sort of kind of like you've got a jigsaw puzzle without the box and you're kind of trying to make sense of all of the pieces in front of you. And it's sort of like a daily, it's a daily thing. You wake up in the morning and sometimes you'll turn a corner and you'll kind of like go, oh, things were a little bit better today. Um Yeah, it's just a real, it's a real fucker. It's a shame that it's, it's, it's I say it's a shame. It's awful that if pe if people go through, if pe you know, I feel like my depression went up a gear recently and then it's come down a gear. And it's kind of like it went up to a point where I was just like, if this is what people are, are going through, then, you know, there needs to be, I, it's just, it's sort of like it's, it's, I've understood my depression or I've understood depression in a whole new light since it got really bad mm. and coming out of the other side of it is a relief. And, um, uh, and I feel like I'm sort of like beginning to take steps on a path that I'm kind of looking forward to. And I think that that's, it's, it's not about kind of like external, rewards and financial rewards and um artistic success or anything like that it's just kind of like it's about solving 
puzzles that are in your head and trying to work out who you are and how how you can be happy with what you've got mm. let's finding, just say, finding peace isn't it finding peace let's just say that you know uh your life and this is what happened with the pandemic it was a, everything got frozen everything stopped and you go you know it's like at the end of an exam put your pens down and this is who you are for three months during the pandemic or for a year during the pandemic right you can't go out you can't, no one can come in and you're left with you and your own horrible little brain and this is this is you you're stuck in your fucking that was flat me yeah. or your apartment and and you put you know who are you what have you got and you go ah yikes yikes it's a fucking horror show it's a car crash in here mm -hmm. and so then it's great because it means that you bit by bit you can kind of work out okay let's just say um i'm not going to be a millionaire let's just say um uh i'm not going to be uh, the biggest star on the planet let's just say you know, which aren't things that I've ever kind of like aspired towards, but it's just kind of like, let's just say that this is as good as it gets. How are you going to make the best out of that? Gratitude kind of is what you're talking about there, which is a big word for us on this show is like daily acknowledgement and expression of that gratitude. And that's where the kind of sense of inner joy and inner peace and contentment, I think really starts to come into its own. Sure. When you're not wanting more. Yeah, and I love that puzzle analogy. You said the puzzle without knowing where the pieces go, without the cover. I love that analogy. It's great. I'm gonna steal that from you. Um, yeah, I just love what you just said, and I love the fucking honesty because you're saying it too in in such a way where I think a lot of people understand that maybe don't understand what it's like to have to deal with your own head. And I often find, like you were saying, it got worse. You know, I find those moments where you think you're okay and it gets worse when you do come out the other side of that, it's so fucking profound because, you know, you're going along, you think, oh, I'm doing progress, there's progress here. And then you, you know, they turn that corner and it's like, well, fuck me. But coming out of those moments when it is that sheer, you know, that seizing up of yourself, like how do I, fuck? I thought I was doing good, but how the fuck do I deal with this one now? Um, and I, I feel like those moments in my life, the other side of that of just this breath of fresh air of like oh fuck if i can get through that i can start untangling all this other stuff and it's a constant evolution and every day is different you know you wake up every single fucking day is different every morning is different um and like matt said i i've been on this practice a very strict practice where my first thought is gratitude come hell or high water no matter where i'm at what's going on how much I drank the night before, which I've been better at lately. That first thought, I stop everything. I don't pick up my phone and do shit. And I just sit and just think of things I'm grateful for and inject that and discipline of like gratitude is the first thought. That's helped a lot for me. It's not a problem solver. It doesn't solve all the things, but little things like that I've learned through this pandemic, through being away that I don't know if I would have had the wherewithal to come up with had I not just stopped and really sort of looked at the the car crash scene all of that you know and figured out how to start cleaning it up you know yeah, yeah powerful stuff man love you nick one of the things i was thinking throughout that chat which i often think when i'm doing these episodes is i can't wait for a time when the three of us 
can hang out. And when Killswitch are playing over here, I'll I'll take you down to a show, Nick. And I look forward to yeah spending some time with the pair of you. Yeah, fuck, fuck the band. I'd rather just go there and be a human. Fuck my band. <laughs> I want to go there and hang out with you guys. Period. <laughs> Yeah, this has been great. Thank you, Nick. Thank you for just being you in, in, in all walks of life. You're a dear friend, and I hope you know. I just want to stress that my comedy is also funny. <laughs> <laughs> just, it's, it's good. It's good stuff. You know, I think comedians have this thing, don't they, where you, when you're on a podcast, it's kind of, you know, in a cynical way, it's an advert for your as you say, your stand-up. And so you kind of want to be funny on podcasts. And I did think going into this, like this isn't a funny show. I hope Nick will enjoy it. But um, I hope you did enjoy it, mate. And it was nice to just hear you talk I, I, openly and honestly I, and be real. And I'd also just like to say that, you know, all of those interactions I've had with people after gigs where people have talked to me and told me about, about their situations, I'm incredibly grateful for that. And... Um, yeah. uh, you know, and if I could go around and do it door to door, then, you know, I probably wouldn't want to do that. Actually, I'd, I'd be careful with what I said, but, but, but it, it, I feel sort of honored that people feel that they can talk to me about these things. And, and, I, and I wouldn't I wouldn't have it any other way. And I think there's just another way for me to deal with that. I think that I would always encourage people to talk about um we're very we're very privileged do you know what i mean we've got a point where i'm a guest on uh someone else's podcast where we're talking about our mental health problems and we have a way of kind of like expressing ourselves yeah it may be useful for other people to hear this and think oh i i suffer from something similar but it's a luxury for us to be able to sit down and talk about this stuff uh it, on a format that other people will listen to mm. and there are people out there that don't have that luxury and don't have that opportunity and i just think that um uh like i said i've been in therapy for years and sometimes i'll have a conversation with someone that i haven't talked to in a while and i'll discover something new about myself and um i think one of the things that i'm most proud of is that um i really love people and i really love um helping people and i really love trying to help people and i think that um uh, I, I think that people should be encouraged to talk about what they're going through and what their issues are mm. and whether if, if it's not with me which it won't be uh it, you know it might it, be or it, or, it, or it might be you know but like but but the, there are there are places out there can help you mm. and um always always look for help i've been in some really dark places recently and um if it wasn't for my girlfriend and my therapist and my family uh helping me through all this stuff you know i don't i don't know whether i'd be here and um it's you know it, i'm here today because i've talked to other people about it so i encourage that that's yeah. what I would say. I'm I'm with you on that. I feel the exact same way. Having that conversation and and continuing to have that conversation, even when sometimes I don't want to have that conversation, has definitely saved my life. And I love that. I think that's a beautiful note to end on. And before before we do end, I got to tell you too, um, a little more lighthearted. The musical shit you do is great, by the way. Um, 
And I love your voice. It reminds me a lot of um, Lemmy from Motorhead or, or Neil Clutch. <laughs> you got this burly. I, I fucking think you should do an album sometime, like a real fucking record. You got a great rock and roll voice. I got to tell you that, man. That's a great part of your act. And anyone who's not familiar with this man, check him out. He's fucking brilliant. He's different. And this has been a total fucking pleasure, man. Oh, well, thank you very much. Thank he you. does have a couple of albums out. I, did, I didn't want to say, I've got a couple of albums. Yeah, but I, I didn't, didn't switch you say. on to those, Jesse. Yeah. That's my bad. I've got, yeah. I'm, I'm, and he's working on four at the moment. Four. Yeah, I've got four albums. That are, that oh, are, fuck me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, it's great. It's great. No, it's great. Because I envy you in a way because... Uh, You've only just discovered me, and just, <laughs> uh, you've got you've got twenty years to sort of sift through. Uh, uh, oh, I love it! You're the luckiest man on the planet, in a way. So. Well, I I can't wait to j to jump into it, man, because you know the the couple hours I binged you last night, it, I was just fucking loving it. It's great, and you know I will also say this too: you talk about helping people, you do fucking help people because laughter is absolutely amazing therapy. And, uh, you know, some of my darkest times, I switch something on that makes me laugh and it makes a world of fucking difference. So keep doing that, man. And I, I will definitely go and find the music you've done. I love that. Yeah. Well, you're always, you're always welcome at any of my gigs. Thank you. Oh, thanks. Likewise. Likewise, motherfucker. Likewise. Thank you. Thank you. Nick, thanks for always being a great friend. And thank you for this. This has been awesome. Thank you so much, dude. Thank you very much. Thank, yeah, brother. thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> thank, thanks. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.